Since it's the seventh pastoral anniversary, why don't we just turn to the seventh book of the Bible? We'll just take advantage of this seven business. And you wish I would only preach seven minutes. Thank you, Pastor, for the invitation to be here. I've been giving him a bad time because I was not the selected speaker. I was several names down the list, and it cost me a lot of money to get here. I paid speaker number one $5,000 to cancel, speaker number two about 3000 and came on down the list till finally they got to my name, and I got the opportunity. Praise the Lord. I feel kind of bad because people that don't know me, they don't realize I'm not telling the truth right now. <laughs> Even the music forsook me. After all these times I've been here, you would think that they would know they're supposed to play that music till I read my scripture. But uh, they didn't. Judges chapter 3 tonight, I want to say thank you for the invitation. And what an incredible run it's been for the last seven years. Um, I've watched this church... Uh, grow, not only numerically, but also spiritually, and uh, doubled, and then has now tripled, and I'm so thankful for that, yeah. and I do attribute that to the hand of the Lord, and to godly leadership, and I admire and respect Brother and Sister Archer very, very, very much. He is a, he is a very knowledgeable, wise preacher in a young man's body. He preaches beyond his years. And that is a product of good raising and hard work. And I appreciate that very much. Appreciate him as a preacher and as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a son, and as a brother. And I have had the privilege of being with him in his family settings. And uh, I can assure you he is a wonderful, wonderful Christian man. Appreciate what's happened on this building, the property, the finances. Uh, wonderful job, wonderful, wonderful job. So the local church here, I want to say thank you for your dedication and uh, your spiritual walk with God these last few years. I, I greet you in the name of the Lord and send condom, uh, commendations to you. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> I get the award tonight for coming the farthest. Praise the Lord. No one lives any farther than I do. Many of you are wondering, I didn't drive. I rode an airplane. It still took longer than most of you uh, to get here. Amen. But I'm so happy to be here and to be with such esteemed friends, to be with uh, the senator from Indiana. Praise the Lord. Good to be with Elder Strievel. And uh, if you don't understand that, ask him about Idaho and the bodyguards and the, the limousine and the autographs and all of the things that happened there. <laughs> Words. Words cannot express my deep love and appreciation for this good man. And I can sincerely tell you that next to my pastor, I.H. Terry, no one's ever had the impact on me that Gary Strebel's had. He's just an amazing, amazing man in our day, and I love him. And when you get the big teddy bear, Dad Archer, hallelujah, he's just, he's a big man. Look at this. Look at this. Do I look like a little boy? Or... I love 
doubt, aren't you? Amen. He's the bishop. He's solid. He's steady. He's a friend. Amen. To all the ministers that are here, I'm so happy to see you. And Brother Johns, it's been a long time, but I'm so happy to see you. And my sister Johns, I forgot how good you could sing. What a wonderful job you did tonight. These good men of God, my good friend Brother Holt, love him very much. Appreciate him. Brother Kelly, we're close to the same age. So we work on this age thing. We're both 58 years old, and we're struggling with that. And so I brought him good news this week on how to deal with it. When someone says, how old are you? I say, I turned 58 years ago. Praise God. (laughs) He's going to take up the same mantle. Praise the Lord. Brother Evans, good to see you. And I have no better friend than Jeff Sangle. Good to see him. And Brother Kreider, these other ministers here. God bless you. Amen. Let's go to the word of the Lord tonight. Thank you for all the food you brought in, folks. It's wonderful. Wherever the brother is, only the motorcycle. I don't want to get carnal here, but that was a wonderful moment as well. Thank you for the use of the Harley. I mean the motorcycle. I don't want to say bad words in the pulpit. but You know, the least you guys could do, if somebody flies 3,000 miles from Seattle where it rains quite a bit, at least you guys could have sunshine when I come. It was a torrential downpour. And, that was a, you know, if you're not smart enough to figure out motorcycles don't have covers over them. And I was so excited to be in Florida where you don't have to wear a helmet. You see how much cover I have. It was a bad day. Praise the Lord. I've been here a number of times, and, you know, I like to preach high heel kicking messages. I like to be a happy preacher, and I am very happy tonight. But I'll be more serious tonight. Those of you that have never heard me, this may be a little, you know, you almost feel bad. I I tell God, you know, this is really not fair, God, because they're going to go away from here, and that's what they're going to think I am all the time. And when I complain to God, he just doesn't really care what I think. He just kind of tells me to go ahead and preach. So this is a little abnormal for me, what I'm going to preach tonight. But uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 5, 6, and 7 says, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. My pastor always said, and the Camelites, which are Church of Christ people, but I don't, I don't add to that, but he did. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forget the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. From verse 6, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and their daughters to their sons, and served their gods simple little phrase that you said hundreds of times in your life tonight. My subject is simply these words. No, thank you. No, thank you. That's my subject tonight. Would you lift your hands and ask the Lord to help us in this seventh anniversary service. Lord Jesus, we come to you. Hallelujah. We're reading from your word. Lord, we're asking you to speak tonight. 
Hallelujah. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your holiness. We ask for your power. We ask for your anointing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very kindly. The book of Judges opens to us one of the darkest times of man's history. I want to tell you tonight that in this book called Judges, the people of God should have been celebrating victories and conquering a new land. Judges opens the window into the heart of mankind and I'm going to tell you up front, the picture is not pretty. Several times in the book, this statement is made, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the result of that environment was literally catastrophic. It further emphasizes that there was no king in those days. So every man was left to follow his own decisions. This period of time in the book of the Judges lasted about 450 years. This period of time was as long as the duration of the monarchy. Because there is one book of Judges and there are six books of the kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's natural for us in reading through our Bible to feel like the time period of the kings was much longer, but it wasn't. Both of these time periods were 450 years. God gave man 450 years to reveal what happens when a man does that which is right in his own eyes. The result of that time period was so abhorrent and so tragic that we can scarce comprehend it with our minds. The last five chapters of the book of Judges are as bad and as ugly as any period in history, anywhere, anytime on earth. And from this experiment, and this experience, we can truly agree with God that it is not in man to direct his steps. It might help those of you that are not as familiar with the Bible to think of these people differently. In our culture, when we say judge, we think of courtrooms and juries. These men think more in terms of freedom fighters. Think of them as, and there was one woman, think of them as liberators, fighters, leaders of armies. They are renowned for their military campaigns. There were several of them. There was the first by the name of Othniel. He was a judge for 40 years and his war, his army and fighting involved the place called 
Mesopotamia, which would have been to the east of them. He was followed by a man by the name of Ehud, who served as freedom fighter leader for approximately 80 years. And he fought Moab, and he fought Amnon, and he fought Amalek. Followed by a man by the name of Barak, who needed help, leaned on the only woman who was a judge. Her name was Deborah. And Deborah and Barak fought for 40 years. They fought against a nation by the name of Canaan. Ahimelech fought for three years. Toa for 23 years. Jair, 22 years. Jephthah, more famous, more well-known to us, fought for six years and fought against Amnon. Then there was a little-known judge by the name of Jezrem that fought for seven years and Elon for ten years. And then another famous one by the name of Samson who fought for 20 years. Samson fought against the Philistines. And then there was Eli for 40 years and fought against the Philistines. And then there was Samuel for 20 years and he fought against the Philistines. But in our reading tonight, the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, and this list of people. So it's interesting to me that no judge in the history of the Bible ever lifted a finger as far as we know against this group of people known as the Hittites. It amazes me. For God clearly said, I want them driven out of the land. He clearly fingered them with the hand of God and said, these people need to be kicked out of your land. And yet no judge in the history of the Bible fought the Hittites, even though they were so obvious and they were so powerful, and if you'll accept it at this point before I prove it, I'll give it to you later, and they hung around for 1,500 years. The Hittites were a people of the Bronze Age of the area known as Anatolia, and they were, they were around 1,800 years before Jesus came to this earth. They were well known for their use of chariots. If you research them in history in 1400 years before Jesus Christ, their empire was so large that it encompassed most of Asia Minor. They were very, very powerful people. Their land was what we would look at a map today and say most of modern day Syria and Lebanon. These were the people called the Hittites. They are one of the bridge people, we call them, that spanned the closing of the Bronze Age and the entering of the Iron Age, in particular because of their use of chariots. They, they literally were progressive enough that they took them from the Bronze Age and entered into the Iron Age. And these were mighty people. These were powerful people. These were brilliant people. These were intelligent people. Early on, while other nations were not even involved in this, they formulated ways to write. They came up with what's known in archaeological language as the cuneiform way to write. And their writings are important to this day. Their writings support the Bible that you hold in your hand. They have a particular archaeological find called the Cylinder of Nebronidas, and it mentions Belshazzar, and by doing so, it gives confirmation to the book of Daniel. We don't need that confirmation, but the world sometimes wants to look at the Bible and say, does this book really have any veracity? Does this Bible have any authenticity? How, why should we believe this thing called the Bible? It is these kinds of things 
things that authenticate and prove that the Bible is exactly what it says it is. It is the word of God that has persevered through history and time and they have attacked it a time and again. They would like to discredit it. But it's things like this that prove that the Bible is the word of God. Cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, mentions Belshazzar, gives confirmation to the book of Daniel. They have another cylinder that is supported. You can see it in museums today. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And this book proves, this cylinder proves that the books of Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah are not pie in the sky, but they were written and they are accurate and they are correct. They have a prism called the Taylor Prism. It speaks of Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem and it is in the British Museum. Seen it with my own eyes. It is there. They have a monolith by the name of Kerr and it names Ahab as one of the kings. There are so many things that these people contributed. These were not minor people. These were people of a vast kingdom. These were people of great knowledge. These were people that were progressive and they were a people that became a thorn in the side of Israel for over 1,500 years. But God said, drive them out. There were mountain dwellers. They didn't live on the plains. It was difficult to get them out. Numbers 13 and 29 lets us know they dwelt in the mountains. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 20, we find them introduced to us when God says, I'm going to give you their land, Abraham. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying unto thy seed, have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates? Verse 19 says, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites. And verse 20 says, and the Hittites. Abraham, this land is yours. I'm giving you this land. In Genesis 23 and 10, Abraham buys the burial plot. And Ephraim dwelt among the children of Heth. And Ephraim the Hittites. Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even all that went into the gates of the city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field that I give thee and the cave that is therein, I give it thee in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it thee, bury there thy dead. Isn't it amazing, Brother Holt, that God said to Abraham, everywhere you place your foot, I'm going to give it to you. Isn't it amazing that God said, can you count the stars of heaven? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Isn't it amazing that God said, can you count the sands of the sea? That's how many your descendants are going to be. But would you be interested to know that when he died, the only land he possessed was a three-foot-wide, six-foot-long burial plot, and it was purchased from a hit that's where he got it would you be interested to know that with that promise hanging over him like a looming cloud that would break forth with its abundant rain he only had one child when he died and so the God that said I'm going to give you all of this land allowed him to have one burial plot when he died the God that said I'm going to make you a descendant says the sand of the sea gave him one don't sit there tonight and say that this is all there is there's got to be something born in the heart of a preacher there's got to be something born in the heart of a pastor that says, God said it, and I believe it. And if it doesn't happen before I die, he's still God. And he said it, and it's going to happen because he said it. In Genesis 25 and 9, we know that Abraham is buried there. He is not buried in land purchased from the Kenizzites or the Kenites 
or the Ammonites and the Moabites. The Bible is specific on this. He is buried in land purchased from a Hittite. There Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zoar, the Hittite. In chapter 26 and verse 34 of Genesis, in chapter 36 and verse number 12, Esau takes his wives from the Hittite and brings unkind feelings from his parents. He takes Hittite women to wife. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite. Do you understand that these people are completely interwined in the Bible story? They have been around for a long time and yet it's God that said I'm going to give you their land and I want you to dispossess them. I want them driven out of the land because their gods will be a curse to you. Their form of worship will be a curse to you. They need to depart. They need, And the longer they stayed, the closer they became entwined with the Hittites. In Genesis 27 and 46, Rebecca had enough. She says, I can't handle it if Jacob marries a Hittite. Esau's already married him. And this is what she says. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? I can't stand the thought of my other son marrying a Hittite woman. Esau's already done it, Jacob. I can't stand this anymore. Genesis 49 and 29, Jacob is buried in the same grave purchased from the Hittite. Would you be interested to know tonight? In Exodus 3 and 8, in Exodus 3 and 17, in Exodus 13 and 5, in Exodus 23, 23, in Exodus 23 and 28, in Exodus 33 and 2, in Exodus 34 and 11, all say, drive the Hittite out of the land. Would you be interested to know tonight that in Deuteronomy 7 and 1, it says the Hittites are bigger than you are, Israel, and they're more powerful than you are, but you need to believe God, and He is able to deliver them into your hand. Would you be interested tonight in Joshua 3 and 10 that God says, I promise you, if you will but go to war, I will drive the Hittites out of the land. Would you be interested to know in Joshua 24 and 11, the Bible God said, I have delivered the Hittite into your hand. And yet they were not driven. Scripture I read to you tonight. The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites and the Hittites. And they took their daughters to be their wives. And they gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. Deuteronomy 20 and 17. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance. Thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites. That's what God said. 
God said, when you come up against them, I'm telling you, there is something about this group of people that if you don't deal with it, they have a way of working their way into your midst. They have a way of hooking themselves on to you. They have a way of getting in your life and your sons will marry their daughters and they will become close advisors to the high positions of your land and they will pollute the purity of what I am trying to do in the land. God said, kill them. Get rid of them. But they did not do it. For we see in David's day when he stands on a hillside in 1 Samuel 26 and 6, and he's running from Saul, and he wants to make his point, and he wants Saul to know, I'm not against you, Saul. And he stands there with two men, and he says, Who will go into the camp of Saul with me? And one of the young men there is his first cousin, Joab's brother. He said, Hell. But the other one, the Bible says, is Ahimelech the Hittite. The very people that should have been driven out. The very people that God said, get them out of they're going to pollute your, their, your worship and your, your walk with God. Get them out. David has them right next to him as a close warrior and confidant. Maybe you've read David's mighty men. Maybe you've read the 30 mightiest men in David's army. And one of them was a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. The Bible doesn't put those kind of designates to just condemn. It doesn't put that on them to just make them look bad or to reveal their past. I'm telling you it puts it there because Uriah was a Hittite. It puts it there because Ahimelech was a Hittite. He might have joined David's army, but he didn't join David's religion. He might have been a follower, and he might have been loyal, but he was not a one God worshiper. He was not in the Bible. He was a worshiper of Baal. I'm here to tell you there is a parallel in our day that we are dealing with the Hittites among us. They've been around a mighty, 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 mighty long time. Because they weren't driven out. Because they weren't dealt with. Now they're comfortable. We're used to them. Ahimelech, come with me. You can be a trusted advisor. Would you be surprised to know that Solomon had to deal with the Hittites. First Kings 9 and 20. And all the people that were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which were the children of Israel, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel also were not able to utterly destroy, even upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bond service to this day. We can't get rid of them. So we'll find a way to use them. We can't really... Drive them out. So we'll pull them in somehow. So that they are a part of our landscape. Solomon said, I'll tax them. I'll cause them to pay taxes. That way they'll be profitable to us. When they put 
money in our coffers. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter that they're still a Hittite. It doesn't matter that they worship one God. It doesn't matter that they're still over here worshiping Baal. As long as money flows into the coffers, then we'll accept the Hittite in our organization. Isn't it interesting in 1 Kings 10 and 29, Solomon actually saw the financial possibility because they used chariots and because they were so brilliant in the use of iron, bridging into the Iron Age, that in 1 Kings 10 and 29, and a chariot came and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 and for all the kings of the Hittites. Because the chariot was worth 600 bucks, elder. Hey, there's a market here. We don't want to get rid of these guys. We'll cut our own throat. Our own pocketbook will be thinner if we won't have anybody to sell our chariots to. And they kept hanging around. Hanging around. I don't have time to read them all. But guess who crops up during Elisha's time in 2 Kings 7 and 6? Hittites. Guess who Ezra has to deal with? Chapter 9 and verse number 1. Hittites. Guess who Ezekiel is still talking about? 1,500 years since they burst on the scene and Abraham shakes hands for the first time and buys the little burial plot. Now we're 1,500 years down the road. And Ezekiel looks at Jerusalem that has been judged by God and has fallen into idolatry and he curses them and says, Your mother was a Hittite. You have brought your mother's spirit into the house of God. I'm telling you, folks, we got a head in the sand if we think there are not Hittites among the apostolic movement. We got our head in the sand if we think they have been completely driven out from among us and if we think the lessons in this lesson, this Bible that I'm talking about are not reoccurring today we've got our head in the sand my point to you tonight is this the Hittites had been around a long long time they had been spared when God said destroy them but here they are 1,400 years later, from 1,900 B.C. at the introduction of Abraham to 500 B.C., the days of Ezekiel, they're still hanging around, causing trouble. From Abraham to Ezekiel, they just kept clinging to God's people. They hung around and hung around and hung around until they were accepted. Much like the temples that Solomon built for his false wives. The peak of his career, golden age of Israel. Solomon builds these temples. 
372 years later, fiery-eyed, angry young man, indignant at the things that are happening to his nation by the name of Josiah, said, what is that? Oh, that, that's those temples that Solomon built to his wives 372 years ago. Hezekiah walked by him every day, never said a word. Asa walked by him every single day, never said a word. All those good reformers, the eight good kings that represent over 200 years of of fruitful, productive, revival time, walked right past them and never saw one thing wrong with them because it was a Hittite influence. And finally somebody said, I want revival bad enough that I don't care where it came from and I don't care how long it's been in the house. If it's of the Hittite, I'm ready to see it go. You see, we want revival. But we don't want to pay what it takes to get rid of the Hittite. Because they buy chariots. Yeah. And some of their daughters are married to our sons. And some of their sons are married to our daughters. And so here we are in 2011 struggling to have revival and the influence of the Hittite has never been removed from our midst. God said, get rid of them. And I'm going to tell you when you get rid of them. He said, because of their gods. Listen to what Deuteronomy 20 and 18 says, the verse following the one I last read to you a while ago. He said, you know why I want you to get rid of those Hittites? That they teach you not to do after their abominations. Because when they're in your midst, when they cling to you, when they become a part of your daily life, they work their way close to positions of power. Their house is close enough for David to stand on his roof and see Uriah the Hittite's wife taking a bath. Because he was worked close to the king. They're in places of influence. They're in places of power. God hated it. I know this is a crowd with children and I'm going to be very, very careful what I say here. But let me tell you, all of those ancient religions had certain parts about sex. In fact, some of them had very, very major parts about sex. They had prostitutes, temple prostitutes. They had all kinds of ugly, debased, horrible things. When I look at America today, I think, you know what? We're living in a nation where sex has become so common among us. Advertising, billboards, books, 
Hollywood tries to cram it down our throats. Movies try to cram it down our throats. It's everywhere. You walk in and can't even buy a loaf of bread without magazines on the counter that are advertising the nudity and the half nudity of people in the magazine. And I'm thinking, my God, we live in a nation of Hittites. Is it any wonder we're struggling with what you mentioned a while ago? Is it anyone? Somewhere the church has got to rise up in 2011 and say, I am sick to death of the influence of the Hittites. We have got to be the people of God. We have got to go back to the morality that we started with. You're go- you may be seated thinking, you're going to say I'm an old fogey, but let me tell you, it wasn't that many years ago. It wasn't okay to live together as a man and a wife until you got married. But the Hittites have led us to know it's all right. When I was a boy, it wasn't all right to publicly announce that you were a homosexual. But the Hittites have made it so that we're not supposed to say anything about that anymore. They can exercise their freedom of speech, but if we open our mouth then we're hate mongers or we're some kind of racist or we're some kind of people that have a narrow, bigoted view of life. I don't have a narrow, bigoted view of life. I hope many of them get saved. But when they come, they've got to live by that Bible the same as everybody else in America. Sports and sex are the gods of America. Movies, advertisements, books, music, videos. They market them. They sell their chariots to the people of God. Let me tell you a little story. Some of you may have read it. It was on my blog. I wrote it. If you don't like it, it's okay. I like it. So I'm big enough if you don't like it. That's fine. I'm going to read you the story, all right? Abathar was angry. He was going to confront. Uriah the Hittite. As the priest that David trusted, he would not allow this Hittite to worship Baal in the camp of Jehovah. He stormed up to the campfire where the noted warriors were lounging. The firelight flickered on the swarthy faces of these hodgepodge freedom fighters. When Abathar walked up, Silence fell. It always does when the preacher walks in. And with steel in his voice, he challenged Uriah. Have you been worshiping your God here in the camp of Israel? Funny how silence can suddenly freeze every sound. Uriah was slow to answer. He was one of the mighty... 30 soldiers of David, and he was not about to take anything from any man. But this was the priest. How he answered could easily start major trouble. 
with men who wore their swords ready to hand. He had seen bloodshed in a flash not long ago when Abner met Joab at the pool. The young men rose to sport and several hundred men died. His eyes were steady as he looked up at Abathar. Slowly, he stood. He looked up to only one man, the man he gave his allegiance to, David. He respected Abathar, but he feared no man. While the elite fighters of David waited to see how this would go down, he replied, Actually, no, I have not worshipped Baal in the camp of Jehovah. And he waited. Abathar was seething with a righteous vengeance. Uriah said tersely, Abathar said, What are the remains of the altar I found today? The word is that you worshipped your God of the Hittites there. I demand an answer. Abathar half shouted. Other men began to gather around. A small fire was now surrounded by a legion of David's fighting men. Uriah said tersely, You ask if I worshipped in the camp. I did not. I went to a high place. And there I practiced my own beliefs. Abathar snarled, how dare you? Uriah stood his ground. I did not join David's religion. I joined his cause to fight for his kingdom. He has never spoken to me of my faith. I have done nothing wrong. Abathar's eyes were those of a zealot, smoldering, angry, barely contained eyes. It was a standoff of proud men, both who felt they were right. It was Joab, of all people, who de-escalated the moment. Slowly, Joab rose to his feet. All eyes shifted to the general. Joab slowly and calmly said to the priest, Uriah, is not asking you to approve of his worship, Abathar. He is asking you to ignore his religion. Everyone there could feel the release of tension. It was a word fitly spoken. Abathar stalked off into the night. Uriah stretched his hands to the fire and said nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, It is not the things we are forced to approve that are our danger in 2011. It is the things we ignore. It isn't what the world is asking us to approve of. It's what they're asking us to ignore. It's what they're asking us to have silence in the pulpit. I don't know, but did Uriah being a Hittite factor in to David's taking Bathsheba? I don't know. I cannot answer to you the question tonight of why did Bathsheba have enormous influence on David until his death. 
David had many wives and many children. Read it in the Bible for yourself. The list is long. But at his deathbed, it was this woman. And it was her son. That's how much influence she had on David. You're going to answer, well, it's because she was Ahithophel's granddaughter and he was the wisest counselor in Israel of that day. And I grant some of that. I don't know the answer. But I can tell you this. Uriah was a Hittite and he lived close to the palace. And the only men that lived close to the palace were trusted men. Men that had come to the inner circle. Men of the inner 30. And David's fault was because he allowed a Hittite to get too close to his house. If you think you're spiritual enough to deal with the Hittites, then you're better than David. You're better than Solomon. You're better than Elisha. You're better than the prophets. You're better than Ezekiel. You're better than 1,500 years of judges and men of God and kings. If you think you can live next to a Hittite and let them get close to you and it won't affect you and it won't affect your house and it won't affect your children and it won't affect your future. The Hittite will bring you I wonder if Joab had any reservations when he read the letter Elena said when you go out to battle put Uriah in the forefront of the battle for all you Bible scholars show me one place in the Bible where David ever took the life of an Israeli even under justifiable circumstances he didn't there had to be a reason it has to be that he said well he is a Hittite. Some of these things I don't know. And I'm going to say some harsh things for those of you that are first timers. Forgive me. But the world that we live in is not asking me to approve of the gay lifestyle. They are only asking me to ignore the gay lifestyle. And if I just ignore it, the Hittites will live among us. And our sons will marry their daughters and our daughters will marry their sons. And we will pay a price for many years. If we don't wake up and literally smell the coffee, they're making it right now. If we don't wake up and smell the coffee. And say there's some things that cannot coexist in an apostolic church. There are just some things that I not only will not approve, I will not ignore. I will preach. I'm almost done. You may be seated. I'm almost finished. This world is not, and I'm sorry if this is offensive, this world is not asking me to approve of abortion. This world only asks me to remain silent in the pulpit and don't preach against him. Even though the Bible speaks of the sanctity of life, all the Hittite wants is you don't have to approve of the way I worship. Just ignore 
the fact that I'm in the camp. Just let me work my way close to those in power. Let me hang around long enough until I'm just a familiar person on the landscape. The world is not asking me to approve of social drinking. All they ask is that I would ignore it. The world is not asking me to approve of medical marijuana. They're only asking me to ignore it. That's all they ask. I wonder how many things among us might be considerations to be driven out to help us accelerate apostolic revival. I'm asking the musicians if they would come back right now. I say to the Hittites, no thank you. I may not sell as many chariots, but no thank you. I may not see my daughters married, but I'd rather them be unmarried than to be married to a Hittite. No thank you. Mr. Hittite, my congregation needs to grow. My congregation is growing, and I'm thankful. But it does not need to grow at the expense of Hittites. There are things we're not going to relent. We're not going to give up. We're not going to ignore. Our outward dress, our holiness standards, our godly examples are not something we're willing to sacrifice. You can't go to a major Pentecostal meeting without seeing Hittites walk among us. Their attitudes are not holy. Their dress is not holy. They're always pushing the line. They've always got some little look to them that is just something about it that you look at and think, that's just not godly. That's just not, I can't really even always put my finger on it. They've been hanging around for a long, long time. I pose this question to you tonight. What would have changed? What would have been different? If Abathar would have drawn his sword that night and said, you may be Uriah and you might be one of the 30 mighty men, but I refuse to allow this compromise to exist. I will do what J.L. did when she drove the nail through the head of Sisera. I will do what God told us to do. I wonder what could have Changed. I wonder if there would have ever been a David and Bathsheba. I wonder if the whole domino effect of that entire sequence and the sword never departing from David's house could have taken a different track if it hadn't been a hit tight in the camp. I'm not excusing David. I want you to stand with me. I want to read you a poem tonight. If you would, just listen to it. It's old. 
It's one of my pastor's favorite. This is what it says. The church and the world walked far apart on the changing shores of time. The world was singing a giddy song and the church a hymn sublime. Come, give me your hand, said the merry world, and walk with me this way. But the faithful church hid her gentle hands and solemnly answered, Nay. I will not give you my hand at all, and I will not walk with you. Your way is the way that leads to death, and all your words are untrue. Nay, just walk with me a little space, said the world with a kindly air. The road I walk is pleasanter, and the sun shines always there. Your path is thorny and rough and rude, and mine is broad and plain. My way is paved with flowers and dews, and yours with tears and pain. The sky to me is always blue, no want, no toil, I know. The sky above you is always dark. Your lot is a lot of woe. There's room enough for you and me to travel side by side. Half shyly the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow. And the old world grasped it and walked along, saying in accents low, Your dress is too simple to please my taste. I will give you pearls to wear, rich velvets and silks for your graceful form. And diamonds to deck your hair. The church looked down at her plain white robes and then at the dazzling world and blushed as she saw his handsome lip with a smile contemptuous curled. I'll change my dress for a costlier one, said the church with a smile of grace and then her pure white garments drifted away and the world gave him their place beautiful satins and shining silks, roses and gems and costly pearls while over her forehead her bright hair fell crisp in a thousand curls. Your house is too plain, said the proud old world. I'll build you one like mine with walls of marble and towers of gold and furniture ever so fine. So he built her a costly and beautiful house, most splendid it was to behold. Her sons and beautiful daughters dwelt there gleaming in purple and gold. Rich fairs and shows in the halls were held and the world and his children were there. Laughter and music and feast were heard in the place that was meant for prayer. There were cushioned seats for the rich and the gay to sit in their pomp and pride. But the poor who were clad in shabby array sat meekly down outside. You give too much to the poor, said the world, far more than you ought to do. If they're in need of shelter and food, why need it trouble you? Go, take your money and buy rich robes, buy horses and carriages, fine, buy pearls and jewels and dainty food, buy the rarest and the costliest wine. My children, they dote on all these things, and if you their love would win, You must do as they do and walk in the ways that they are walking in. 
So the poor were turned from her door in scorn, and she heard not the orphans cry, but she drew her beautiful robes aside as the widows went weeping by. Then the sons of the world and the sons of the church walked closely, hand and heart, and only the master who knoweth all could tell the two apart. Then the church sat down at her ease and said, I'm rich and my goods increased. I have need of nothing or ought to do but to laugh and dance and feast. So the sly world heard and he laughed in his sleeve and mockingly set aside, the church has fallen, the beautiful church, and her shame is her boast and her pride. The angel drew near to the mercy seat and whispered in sighs her name. Then the loud anthems of rapture were hushed and heads were covered with shame. And a voice was heard at last by the church from him who sat on the throne. I know thy works and how thou hast said. I am rich and hast not known. Thou art naked, poor and blind, wretched before my face. Therefore from my presence cast I thee out. My next little statement that I close with is me. It's not for any man on this platform, anybody in this. Please, I'm not taking shots at anybody. But I've reached a place in my life. I'm 58 years old. I want a clean church, a holy church, a righteous church. And I want my voice to be loud and clear. Mr. Hittite, I don't want to sell you chariots. I don't want you in my midst. I don't want your influence. It's this little part right here. I'm not shooting at anybody. But Mr. Hittite, I don't want your colored lights on my platform. Mr. Hittite, I want it loud and clear. I don't want your music. I don't want your worship. I don't want your style of preaching. I don't want your lingo. I don't want to run with you, Mr. Hittite. I don't want to hang with you, Mr. Hittite. I don't want to be like you, Mr. Hittite. You are a Hittite, sir, and we do not serve the same God. I don't want your women. I don't want your chariots. I'm tired of you hanging around. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Elder Archer, would you just come stand right here in front of this pulpit? This first little part is for the men of this local assembly. If there's men here that in their heart they say, Pastor, we're with you and we want you to keep the Hittites out of our church give me the key of G we're going to sing an old song and as we sing this song if you really mean that I want you to step out and come stand around your pastor to let him know you can lean on me